only person who's actually running in this race, including the incumbent, who has policy experience and bipartisan coalition building experience, which in this district, which leans right by a solid eight points, maybe more, you need somebody who knows how to bring everybody to the table, but who's also gonna stand up for my values and the values of the people in the community. Hello, and welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Ben Zielinski, and we'll be your host this week. This week, we will speak with one of the Democrats running in the 51st House District Democratic primary, Chelsea Laliberte Barnes from Palatine. Barnes is a mom, social worker, and small business owner who runs her own consulting firm. Barnes also is the founder of Live for Lolly, an Arlington Heights nonprofit that works to raise awareness about substance abuse disorders. In our interview, Barnes will tell us more about the personal story behind this nonprofit and the federal and state legislation that she pushed for to combat opioid overdoses. Nabila Saeed of Inverness is also running in the race. However, she had an emergency and was unable to record the podcast. Nabila is a 23-year-old who would be one of the youngest people ever elected to the Illinois General Assembly and the state's first Muslim American lawmaker. Nabila is a recent graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, who has experience in political campaigns and organizing. According to her website, Nabila plans to focus on education, vote against legislation that could result in property tax increases, push to expand paid family leave, and work with state and local organizations to assist refugees coming to Illinois, especially from war-torn nations like Ukraine and Afghanistan. The 51st House District includes portions of northern Cook County, including Palatine and Inverness, and parts of southern Lake County, including Lake Zurich, Deer Park, Hawthorne Woods, and Long Grove. The winner of the June 28th Democratic primary will face incumbent state representative Chris Boss, a Republican from Lake Zurich. Now here's my interview with Chelsea Laliberte Barnes. So Chelsea, people might not remember your name, but a, a lot of people probably, at least in the north suburbs, know your story. Tell us about Lally's Law and some of the work you've done around that and the work you've done to fight opioid addictions. Sure. So first of all, it's really great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for covering our race. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those few candidates who actually has a lot of policy experience already under her belt before she decides to run. Um, I consider myself a pretty qualified candidate because of that. And so uh, a lot of people know in 2008, my brother Alex died from a heroin overdose in our home in Buffalo Grove. And you know, at the time, this was like the height of the opioid epidemic, um, a different wave of it. You know, it was prescription pill driven prim primarily. And, you know, we still had pill mills and all those types of things where people could literally walk into a facility and get access to Oxycontin and Norco and anything they needed to uh, prevent withdrawal and, and prevent somebody from um, being in pain. And um, it was during that time that my brother started, I think, using um, opioids. We don't know a lot still because, you know, he... He never really shared with us what was going on with him, but he always, you know, liked drugs and, and really wanted to, um, you know, he wanted to numb. He wanted to feel good or feel better. And I think that's why most of us use substances or turn to anything that could be quote unquote addictive. Um, but so we started Live for Lolly um, in our 
uh, out of our living room at my brother Shiva. And Live for Lally is uh, now one of the largest recovery community organizations in the state. Um, we literally, from day one, 2009, we were just a little rinky-dinky organization, grassroots always. And now we operate on like $1.2 million a year and we have a big staff and we are the only mobile needle exchange in five counties. Um, we we um, guide people to treatment. We literally drive them to their methadone appointments. We get them housing. We get them food. We, we're the people who go see a homeless person at Jewel and we are going to engage with them and not treat them like a pariah, as many people do. Um, so you know, we've been ingrained in the community for a long time. And Lolly's Law, well, there's two versions of Lolly's Law. There's the Illinois version, which is an omnibus bill. And what an omnibus package is, is a series of small bills that get rolled into this package. So there's all in all, there's probably like 30 or 40 bills from primary prevention and early intervention all the way through to treatment access, um, first responder solutions, overdose prevention, I mean, there's a ton in that bill, but the biggest thing that Lolly's Law did was it eliminated um, um, out-of-pocket costs for medication-assisted treatment, like methadone or suboxone, medications that actually help withstand withdrawal and cravings. And that's really the, the, most, the, the most scientific way we know how to treat opioid addiction is through these medications and counseling and recovery supports. So what this bill did, we became the first state in the country to eliminate any out-of-pocket costs. So insurance companies have to cover these medications in full, without controls, um, and still today they do that, which is amazing, and we desperately needed it. And the other thing that it did was it provided naloxone at the pharmacy level. So anybody can walk into a pharmacy today and ask for naloxone, and they're able to get trained and get it over the counter. It's actually called like a pharmacist prescribed program. But, you know, it just created more access. And we were also one of the first states in the country to do that. And then I had the fortunate opportunity of working with both Congressman Brad Schneider and Congressman Bob Dold, who were uh, both in the 10th district, uh, our 10th district Congress folks. And um, Bob was actually the one who ended up coming to us and saying, you know, we really want to do this at the federal level. We want to take Lolly's Law and make it a federal law. And so over a period of like two and a half years, we went from this pet bill being on its own, trying to pass it through different committees and get it on the floor to provide states with a lot of money every year to be able to execute naloxone distribution programs. And I realize I'm talking about naloxone and the audience might not realize it's an overdose prevention medication. It reverses overdoses. So I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead of myself. But um and then we got the opportunity to roll it into what was an, another omnibus package called the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which is another big, big bill. And it passed. It passed and Obama signed it. And now every state in the country can access funding through the CDC every year for naloxone distribution. So I, I think the to get back to your original question of you know my history and why I'm doing this, I mean, I have legitimate experience tackling really tough social justice issues. I'm not afraid to do it. I'm not afraid to work with anybody who wants to jump in and, and help address a public health crisis and save lives. And we've, done, we, we've tried to do that. And of course, there are more layers to it to really get us out of the opioid epidemic. Um, but the groundwork is being laid and we're really seeing um, significant changes. Yeah, that's kind of one of the interesting things I th think about your candidacy is that you actually have experience at two levels of government, 
advocating for legislation and you know you've been through that committee and bill process you know you're you're an advocate you're also a small business owner um you know why what made you decide to run for the general assembly well there's there's a few reasons well first of all uh, thank you for pointing out that I am a small business owner, but we also didn't talk about the fact that I'm a mother. Um, I running a race when you're a mother, a young working mother, my my I have to work. I'm not in a position where I can just volunteer my time to do this. Um, um, it's it's very challenging. So last year, um, my very dear friends, State Senator Melinda Bush, who I've worked on many pieces of legislation with over the years and a number of advocacy initiatives, said, you know. I know you moved. Did you know that you moved into a district that's being redrawn? And we think that um, your opponent will be Chris Boss. And um, I said, no, why are you asking me? And she said, well, you know, I think I think you really need to consider the next let what's the next step for you, which is using everything you've learned and everything that I have been so you know privileged and fortunate to experience at this um, very impactful level. You know, I've always been about the community. That's always been my number one focus in in my in the work that I do and really in my family. I'm Jewish. We believe in the notion of tikkun olam, which is healing the world through healing one person. Um, and so I think. Um, Ultimately, it was about community and it was about being able to use what the skills that I've built to actually support people in the community as I've always done. So my son, who's three, is the reason I'm running. I look at his little face and, you know, we're, we're here talking the morning after this Texas shooting where now 19 people were killed from gun violence in a school. Like as a mother who sends her child to public school, that is terrifying, terrifying and disturbing to me to process. So we have a lot to do. I do not want my son experiencing the type of, of threats to his safety, environmental crises where the planet is literally like changing so significantly. Will he have a planet? Like I think about these things every day and him and his friends and all the kids in my neighborhood. What will we, what are we leaving them? Especially with the political discourse that's going on. The other thing is of course I'm running in memory of my brother and I'm running for anyone who has been impacted by a mental health condition or who has been marginalized. I mean, I have spent hundreds and hundreds, thousands of hours with folks who struggle on the streets and, and also in my, in my office as a social worker every day as a clinician. I mean, people are struggling so significantly and, it, and I'm a person who my trauma response is fight. So I'm going to fight for them. And um, I and that's that's really who I am at my core. And of course, I think the third big reason is just um, I again, I am a community driven person. I know how to create change. I want to create change. I'm the only person who's actually running in this race, including the incumbent who has policy experience and bipartisan coalition building experience, which in this district, which leans right by a solid eight points, maybe more. You need somebody who knows how to bring everybody to the table, but who's also going to stand up for my values and the values of the people in the community. Um, and we have had really poor representation. So I'm um, I'm in it. <laughs> I know my why. I know my reasons. And I get up every morning being motivated by them. Yeah, in my opinion, I think this has kind of turned into one of the more high profile Democratic primaries in the General Assembly for this election cycle. Um, you've been endorsed by Dick Durbin, Brad Schneider, several Lake County officials, several state lawmakers. Your opponents also picked up endorsements from members of Congress, Comptroller Susanna Mendoza, and other state lawmakers. 
know, what does it mean for this race to just have so much attention? I'm glad that people care, frankly. I really am, because I think a lot of times, you know, especially with all of the, the, the number of issues that have gone on over the last 10 years in our lives um, between COVID and Trump and um, gun violence and, um, and, you know, George Floyd, I mean, Gosh, I think I just, I just, I just as a social worker and just as a person, am so encouraged by the amount of hope that people feel in two young women running for office, um, and I think that that's, you know, that's really critical. You know, for me, again, um, it, this was always again about serving the community, having strong representation, and I think that people who meet me know that I really mean it when I say. I will do what I say I'm going to do, or I will at least attempt to do that. And um, I think that that is hope, brings hope to people. People are very scared right now. They don't trust their government. They don't know how government can work for them. Look at what's going on with the draft decision leak with Roe versus Wade. I mean, as a woman, as a mother, as a human, it's terrifying to think about what my what 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 women and young girls right now are facing. So. Um, you know, I think the fact that two young women are running is is appealing to people, especially in a district where people believe it's unwinnable. I don't believe that. We have a very winnable strategy on uh, my team. But um, um, I just think it's it's time. People want to see new leadership. And I think people also like the idea that, at least for me, I mean, I'm, I'm running to bring people together and try and heal our community. I mean, that, that's a big that's a big hurdle. It's a big task, but that's always what I've said from day one. This is about bringing people together, not continuing this polarization, changing the way politics works for my son, for your children. That's that's my MO. Yeah, so let's get into some of the issues in this campaign. There's obviously so much to talk about this year. It seems like there's a for every big issue, there's another big issue that seems to come up. Um, obviously, public safety is a big concern in this election. We talked a lot about it on Thursday night or Wednesday night or Tuesday night in the governor's primary uh, debates on Channel 5 and WGN. So as a, as a state lawmaker, you can only do so much when it comes to addressing crime. You're not the mayor. You're not you're not the police. But what do you want to see state lawmakers do? And what would you do if elected to address what people perceive as increasing crime here in Illinois? Well, here's the, the misconception. I actually have done work that's contributed to lowering crimes and keeping communities safer. Um, and I've done that work through the Lake County Opioid Initiative, which is a bipartisan coalition that was developed in Lake County in 2012 with former leadership in the county and brought literally hundreds of groups and advocates together to actually create change and provide a pathway to recovery for people who struggle with low-level nonviolent offenses like drug use, mental health crises, which by the way, why are we criminalizing drug use and mental health? I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Um, we can get there if you want in this podcast, but it's a big topic. Um, and so much of this work is around really localized criminal justice reform. So I don't believe that there is that state lawmakers are only tasked with writing and passing laws. I think we have a duty to actually see those same changes happening locally. So, um, you know, as someone who's helped write and pass criminal justice reform legislation, I have a lot of thoughts about this issue. I'm incredibly concerned about the uptick in violent crime in Chicago and the, suburb, um, in the, in the suburbs. And, 
you know, um, we, we've got to act quickly and we've got to act thoughtfully. Um, but we also need to all take a step back and recognize that crime does not happen in a vacuum. There is, there are many root causes that sociologists and researchers we've known for years are keys to reversing the trends. And some of those have to do with things that we're all experiencing right now. Childhood trauma, um, adverse childhood experiences, um, psychological and mental health issues, poverty, inequitable laws, inequitable systems, antiquated policies. These are all contributors to crime. So um, I supported the criminal justice reform efforts through the safety law. I mean, it really does go a long way to eliminate inequities in the system. Um, I think one of those ways was eliminating cash bail because it's harmful to families and communities. It's a waste of money to incarcerate people for low-level, nonviolent offenses instead of routing them to community care. And so in order to really double down on this, we have to expand community-based services like mental health care, job training, job placement, housing, food access, I mean, immigration services, legal services. When we don't have those resources, people don't have access. It thwarts their access to um, to whatever goal they're trying to achieve in their life. So the overhaul actually helps rein in crime because it makes it easier to ensure that violent people are held in custody. And accordingly, it is supported by many victims' rights groups. Um, and, you know, the thing is, while holding people in custody for crimes that, you know, maybe they need to be held in custody for, we know a lot about what we need to be doing while they're there, the therapeutic interventions that they need to see reductions in recidivism, which is reductions in those same behaviors when they are released. So, you know, as, I'm, as I've said, there, there's local experience doing this on the ground, literally, where we've been able to reduce overdoses, suicides. We've been able to link people to care. We've been able to create more care and more services. We've been able to reduce the number of arrests. We've been able to do a lot locally. We have to duplicate these models at the state level and provide resources for groups to be able to um, emulate this across the state. And so these are ideas that work. The Lake County Opioid Initiative works. It's not perfect. Nothing is in a society of humans with brains. <laughs> but, um, but I think there's a link there and we need to stop thinking about um, things in such siloed measures and start really bringing the local and the statewide work together. Yeah, that's exactly what I was kind of wondering about, you know, in your experience with Live for Lally and all this work you've done to fight opioid addiction and substance abuse, what are state lawmakers missing when it actually comes to fighting drug addiction and, and drug problems? I mean, I think we've come a long way. Let's be clear. I mean, there were more bills that went through the General Assembly this year than I think we all can account for. There were dozens of them that dealt with creating mental health access. I mean, uh, for example, we wrote a bill to eliminate co-pays for naloxone, which we had to go up against the insurance lobby to do. And every single legislator on both sides of the aisle voted in favor of it. So what does that say? That says that we have made a case that harm reduction is important, that people's lives are important in this state, and that vote, vote, the vote makers, or sorry, the lawmakers delivered um, we uh, have made attempts this year to create 
further access to AIDS medications and HIV medications and hepatitis C medications, which, you know, drug users and, and other groups predominantly are struggling with and don't have access to those types of services. So I think we're, we're doing it. One of the problems is those issues aren't necessarily what I, what media believes are like sexy anymore because we've covered this issue and presumably nothing's happened. We've not seen any changes, which is not true. We've seen a lot of changes, but if you're not in the field and you don't see how it works and you're not a cog on the wheel, you're going to believe that there has been nothing done on this. And I want to tell you that lawmakers are delivering. They really are. And I think it's because of the advocacy movement that's been created. They couldn't do this without the advocates. Everybody wants to write a bill right now on treatment and naloxone access. It's, it's, it's become something that is no longer like this taboo subject. So I think with any issue culturally, awareness needs to happen first. You see how long this has taken, what I've been doing this for 13 years, to the point now where we know what we need. This budget session, this is the first time in a very long time, many, many years, where the assembly developed and passed a budget that provides $170 million to mental health and addiction treatment and services. And I'm talking about a whole swath of services. That is unprecedented. And we need to recognize it and call it out as progress. So um, again, like I, I think the other piece I didn't mention really yet about this is people aren't going to stop using drugs. <laughs> That's not a thing. People are always going to try, as I said earlier, to feel good or feel better. And we have to make sure that they have the safety, the tools, the support, the resources when that is happening. Um, you know, look, take a look at cannabis legalization and how that's kind of in the process of transforming the way we think about how substances are, in a sense, medical, they're medications in, in a way. And I think that... Um, that they, they, they have an intended effect, we need to keep them safe and we need to do everything we can to keep our community safe by, um, by, by, by taking a note on this playbook and moving forward with decriminalizing drugs and creating more safety-based resources, period. Yeah, good segue into the budget there. Um, obviously, this year has been a really unique budget. The state's been able to work with a surplus which allowed lawmakers to pass a $1.8 billion tax relief plan to help residents deal with inflation some way. Um, but I think the question a lot of people are asking is, is it actually enough to truly help residents with inflation? And you know, what more would you like to see the state do to address these rising costs and help people be able to, to afford you know, the high cost of living right now? Yeah. So, so just real quick, I think we should all like understand what happened with the budget. A lot of people don't understand what's even in the budget. So I want to take a moment to explain that. So I, I thought the budget was very kind of awe-inspiring and encouraging coming out of like, you know, Rauner, especially working during that time when it was so hard to pass a budget. So, you know, for the first time, you know, we're really putting middle and lower class folks, lower income folks first by providing one-time direct payments the one-year grocery tax suspension, which is going to save consumers $400 million, um, a six-month gas tax suspension, saving consumers $70 million. We're doubling the property tax rebate, which is going to save about $300 per household. So those are all really great things. We've also contri they've contributed historic funding for 
education, human services, public safety, and violence prevention, which we so desperately needed. Um, you know, we're funding pensions at $500 million more than required, which is exactly what we need to be doing is paying our paying our bills greater earlier. Um, we have a, a billion dollars added to the rainy day fund and Republicans even voted to pass the budget, which says a lot. But here's the deal. Um, our legal and tax systems are very complex. And, you know, I'm a social worker. I am not a tax expert or an economist. I'm always learning more. But what I am learning is that the solutions to our problems absolutely do exist. And as with every issue, I surround myself with a lot of knowledgeable, determined, and diverse um, people. Um, we know that Illinois made a commitment to those who have paid into our pension system. That commitment must be honored. Um, we also know that there are like serious flaws with our current system, and they should not be ignored. I, I mean, our tax category alone really needs to be reconsidered entirely. So we've got to start having open and honest conversations about how to best move forward, which means inviting everyone impacted to the table, not just individuals that we agree with. Um, so as Illinois begins to resolve some of these longstanding issues with our debt and eliminates corruption, I think a path forward will emerge. And frankly, it's not going to happen overnight. Our, our, our issues with our finances have been ongoing for years and years and years. So we have to really have the political will to just get in the room, figure it out, and actually start putting in place the measures to actually get it done. Taking a look at how do we improve our tax policies? How do we how do, how do we really truly do that for the long term? So so budget great short term, long term we still got work to do. That's my take. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. A lot of people realize that we still have long-term challenges here in Illinois. And one of the things we're always talking about is how do we attract businesses to Illinois? And you know, when Boeing announced earlier this year, it seemed like the topic of attracting and keeping businesses in the state has become a little bit bigger of an issue in this election. From your perspective as a business owner, what does Illinois need to do to attract and keep businesses in the state and make owning and running a business here an attractive idea? Yeah, what's, what's really interesting, and thank you for saying, as a small business owner, I'm also involved in many chambers of commerce. So I'm around small other small business owners and different types of business owners all the time and listening and I'm trying to understand their challenges. You know, I think one of the things we have to realize is that we have like 38 Fortune 500 companies in Illinois, we're not, you know, which is the fourth largest in the nation. Like we're, we're not suffering for companies that, that are, that are, that are, um, you know, really contributing to our economy. But what we do need to do is take a look at the industries that are actually, that, that we can actually capitalize on that will have multiple benefits. For example, bringing solar and wind energy into Illinois is going to be huge in so many ways. It's so needed. It's so necessary. Doubling down on the hemp and cannabis production here is going to be critical, especially if we're trying to bring more um, social equity into the field of cannabis. I mean, I think that th these are real these are real considerations. Let's take a look at some of the industries that are currently here and that consumers need. I mean, I think we're seeing supply chain issues. We need more companies that can provide direct to consumer services. We need better transportation companies here. I mean, look at like Instacart, you know, like, 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 look at, look at what's happened over the last two and a half years with the innovation that has come out 
of such a dire situation like COVID. So bringing in those types of companies, bringing in tech and setting regulations for those tech companies. I mean, these are these are real things. I mean, just in our backyard here in Lake County, I mean, we have Walgreens here. We have major pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers and distributors. You know, we, we have we have um, we have a, a buzzing economic framework here. What we what we need to make sure of is that we're taking care of those companies. We're taking care of those workers, because when working families have a livable wage, when they've got great benefits and when they know that they are always going to have the support of their employer, um, all communities thrive. We know that from data, but we have to make sure that instead of talking about this like workers versus businesses, we bring it all together and have this be cohesive and comprehensive. So I, you know, we're seeing huge productivity issues because of mental health and trauma and all sorts of pain issues related to many factors, but not disincluding um, COVID. And I think um, it's a time when we all should be looking at reframing how we actually do business here. We want to keep our employees healthy. We want to keep our employees safe. I'm also kind of of the belief that we need to start taxing billionaires and corporations. Um, I think that that's uh, the fact that I, a small business owner, am um, taxed more than like the CEO of a major retailer in the area that I won't name is frightening and, and completely ridiculous. So we've got to work on all of these things, but we have to incentivize businesses to come here. And there needs to be a caucus willing to do that. There needs to be designated groups within the general assembly and business community, including the state chamber of commerce willing to do that. So I'm, I'm on board. I'm, I'm in if they need me. <laughs> So for our last topic here today, ethics is always a favorite topic here in Illinois um, for unfortunate reasons. You know, what sort of ethics reform do you feel like you want to push for if elected this year? Oh, my gosh, Ben. Okay. So first of all, let's cut to the chase here. As a social worker, ethics is like a foundational principle and core value in my life and professionally. One of the reasons I believe we need more social workers in government is because we receive like regular training in ethical practices and we see this every day. So I would approach my role as state representative utilizing some of those core ethics I adhere to as a social worker, you know, a commitment to service and social justice, upholding the dignity and worth of each person in this state, human relationships, integrity. So and when you're making decisions about laws that millions of people will be required to abide by, it, you know, it's a privilege I take very seriously. So there were some recent bills that passed. I mean, I was really encouraged to see the passage of SB 539, which changed the um, state's lobbying um, campaign finance and conflict of interest regulations. Um, it's essential to maintain transparency to ensure that corporations and nonprofits and communities feel educated about these changing measures. You know, five paid 501c3 employees, for example, are nonprofits who are doing advocacy work. They can't lobby anymore. And I think that that's, you know, there were intentional, that, that was intentional. But so how, but how do we train and communicate to those groups how to do this differently that is in line with, um, with legal, with the legal ramifications? Um, so we, we've got to bring advocates to the table, which is, you know, a core piece of my leadership experience on figuring this out. I support 
prioritizing um, independent oversight by giving the uh, legislative inspector general's office more control over the investigations that are conducted and and the reports that become provided to the public and to uh, the general assembly. Um, I think um, when we have, when we require the office of the executive inspector general to report to the legislative ethics commission, it leaves too much opportunity for nepotism and paying out favors. And so I'm going to keep advocating for stricter oversight around how public offices and funds are used um, increasing campaign finance transparency, and of course, disclosing the sources that fund lobbyists and their activities. And those are just a few of the ideas, but I think ultimately independent commissions are always um, the way to go. And I, I would be more than willing to help um, in those in those avenues. Um, I think we what I'm hearing at the doors, and I've knocked on thousands and thousands of them at this point, is people don't trust their government. And if that's one of the things that I'm taking away from a lot of doors, yeah, we've got to fix this, but then we've got to show people that we're fixing it and we've got to explain to them how that's working. Yeah. We could go on with so many different topics mm. in this race. There's just, yeah. there's a lot of stuff to talk about this year. Is there anything else you want to discuss here that, you know, we didn't bring up so far? No, I just, you know, thanks for asking that. You know, I think in this race, we we, we honestly have to take a look at, at reality. Um, you know, this is, like, as I said before, this is a plus eight R district, which leans moderate conservative. And, you know, you have, obviously I'm a Democrat. I'm always going to be a Democrat and I, I will always stand by my values. But ultimately at the end of the day, we, we, we have to not isolate Democrats from Republicans and independents. We need to work to bring people together to actually solve real problems real kitchen table issues. How are we going to pay for childcare? What happens if my car breaks down? What happens if I break my leg and I go into medical debt? Like the, these are real things that my family and friends are facing. I am the person who I believe is the best candidate for this district because I have not only legitimate public policy experience, legitimate community and nonprofit leadership experience, legitimate and extensive coalition development experience, but I also have lived experience. I'm a person in recovery from mental health. I am a person who has gone through deep pain by losing my brother. Um, I um, am a social worker. I've been exposed to so much. And I'm a part of a working family in this community, which is made up of predominantly working families with children. I understand what people are going through, and I really hope that um, I could earn your vote if anybody's listening from the district. Um, and, and, and the other thing is I'm, I'm really accessible. I want people to feel like they can reach out to me. Um, ChelseaForIllinois.com is my website. You can literally text or call me, 224-836-1231, or email me at ChelseaForStateRep at gmail.com, and we're there. So um you know, we've got a lot, we've got a lot to do over the next month and we've certainly got a lot to lose. So we've all got to participate in this political process this year if we want to see change. Yeah, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on this, on the Cloudcast with us. Thank you. I appreciated being here. Thanks for the time. If you want to learn more about the candidates, you can check out their websites. Chelsea's website is chelseaforillinois.com and Nabila's is nabilasaeed.com. You can also learn more about Representative Chris Boss by visiting chrisboss.us. A final reminder that early voting has begun in this year's primary before the final day of voting on June 28th. 
If you live in the 51st House District, you can find more information about how and where to vote by visiting the Lake or Cook County Clerk websites. This episode of the Cloutcast was produced by me, Ben Zielinski, and edited by Alex Nicken. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. 